Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Chapter 17. 4,000 Leagues Under the Pacific. The next morning, the 18th of November, I had quite recovered from my fatigues of the day before, and I went up onto the platform, just as the second lieutenant was uttering his daily phrase. I was admiring the magnificent aspect of the ocean when Captain Nemo appeared. He did not seem to be aware of my presence, and began a series of astronomical observations. Then, when he had finished, he went and leant on the cage of the watchlight, and gazed abstractedly on the ocean. In the meantime, a number of the sailors of the Nautilus, all strong and healthy men, had come up onto the platform. They came to drop the nets that had been laid all night. These sailors were evidently of different nations, although the European type was visible in all of them. I recognized some unmistakable Irishmen, Frenchmen, some Slavs, and a Greek, they were civil and only used that odd language among themselves, the origin of which I could not guess, neither could I question them. The nets were hauled in. They were a large kind, like those on the Normandy coasts, great pockets that the waves and a chain fixed in the smaller meshes kept open. These pockets, drawn by iron poles, swept through the water and gathered in everything in their way. That day they brought up curious specimens from those productive coasts. I reckoned that the hall had brought in more than nine hundred weight of fish. It was a fine hall, but not to be wondered at. Indeed, the nets are let down for several hours, and enclose in their meshes an infinite variety. We had no lack of excellent food, and the rapidity of the Nautilus and the attraction of the electric light could always renew our supply. These several productions of the sea were immediately lowered through the panel to the steward's room, some to be eaten fresh and others pickled. The fishing ended, the provision of air renewed. I thought that the Nautilus was about to continue its submarine excursion and was preparing to return to my room when, without further preamble, the captain turned to me, saying, "'Professor, is not this ocean gifted with real life? It has its tempers and its gentle moods.' "'Yesterday it slept as we did, and now it has woke after a quiet night. "'Look,' he continued, "'it wakes under the caresses of the sun. "'It is going to renew its diurnal existence. "'It is an interesting study to watch the play of its organization. "'It has a pulse, arteries, spasms. "'And I agree with the learned Maury, "'who discovered in it a circulation as real as the circulation of blood in animals.' Yes, the ocean has indeed circulation, and to promote it, the Creator has caused things to multiply in it, caloric, salt. When Captain Nemo spoke thus, he seemed altogether changed, and aroused an extraordinary emotion in me. Also, he added, true existence is there, and I can imagine the foundations of nautical towns, clusters of submarine houses, 
which, like the Nautilus, would ascend every morning to breathe at the surface of the water, free towns, independent cities. Yet, who knows whether some despot... Captain Nemo finished his sentence with a violent gesture. Then, addressing me as if to chase away some sorrowful thought, Monsieur Aranax, he asked, do you know the depth of the ocean? I only know, Captain, what the principal soundings have taught us. Could you tell me them, so that I can suit them to my purpose? These are some, I replied, that I remember. If I am not mistaken, a depth of 8,000 yards has been found in the North Atlantic, and 2,500 yards in the Mediterranean. The most remarkable soundings have been made in the South Atlantic, near the 35th parallel, and they gave 12,000 yards, 14,000 yards, and 15,000 yards. To sum up all, it is reckoned that if the bottom of the sea were leveled, its mean depth would be about one and three-quarter leagues. Well, Professor, replied the captain, we shall show you better than that, I hope. As to the mean depth of this part of the Pacific, I tell you, it's only 4,000 yards. Having said this, Captain Nemo went towards the panel and disappeared down the ladder. I followed him and went into the large drawing room. The screw was immediately put in motion, and the log gave twenty miles an hour. During the days and weeks that passed, I seldom saw him. The lieutenant pricked the ship's course regularly on the chart, so I could always tell exactly the route of the Nautilus. Nearly every day for some time the panels of the drawing room were opened, and we were never tired of penetrating the mysteries of the submarine world. The general direction of the Nautilus was southeast, and it kept between a hundred and a hundred and fifty yards of depth. One day, however, I do not know why, being drawn diagonally by means of the inclined planes, it touched the bed of the sea. The thermometer indicated a temperature of 4.25, a temperature that at this depth seemed common to all latitudes. At three o'clock in the morning of the 26th of November, the Nautilus crossed the Tropic of Cancer at 172 longitude. On 27th instant, it sighted the Sandwich Islands, where Cook died, February 14th, 1779. We had then gone 4,860 leagues from our starting point. In the morning, when I went on the platform, I saw two miles to windward Hawaii, the largest of the seven islands that form the group. I saw clearly the cultivated ranges and the several mountain chains that run parallel with the side and the volcanoes which rise 5,000 yards above the level of the sea. Besides other things the nets brought up were several things that are peculiar to that part of the ocean. The direction of the Nautilus was still to the southeast, it crossed the equator December 1 in 142 longitude, and on the 4th of the same month, after crossing rapidly and without anything in particular occurring, we sighted the Marquesas group. I saw, three miles off, Martin's Peak, the largest of the group that belongs to France. I only saw the woody mountains against the horizon because Captain Nemo did not wish to bring the ship to the wind. There the nets brought up beautiful specimens of fish, some with azure fins and tails like gold, the flesh of which is unrivaled. 
some nearly destitute of scales, but of exquisite flavor, others with bony jaws and yellow-tinged gills as good as bonitos, all fish that would be of use to us. After leaving these charming islands protected by the French flag from the 4th to the 11th of December, the Nautilus sailed over about 2,000 miles. During the daytime of the 11th of December, I was busy reading in the large drawing room. Ned Land and Conseil watched the luminous water through the half-open panels. The Nautilus was immovable. While its reservoirs were filled, it kept at a depth of a thousand yards, a region rarely visited in the ocean, and in which large fish were seldom seen. I was then reading a charming book by Jean Mace, The Slaves of the Stomach, and I was learning some valuable lessons from it, when Conseil interrupted me. "'Will Master come here a moment?' he said in a curious voice. "'What is the matter, Conseil?' "'I want Master to look.' I rose, went and leaned on my elbows before the panes and watched. In a full electric light, an enormous black mass, quite immovable, was suspended in the midst of the waters. I watched it attentively, seeking to find out the nature of this gigantic cetacean. But a sudden thought crossed my mind. "'A vessel,' I said half aloud. "'Yes,' replied the Canadian. "'A disabled ship that is sunk perpendicular.' Ned Land was right. We were close to a vessel of which the tattered shrouds still hung from their chains. The keel seemed to be in good order, and it had been wrecked at most some few hours. Three stumps of masts, broken off about two feet above the bridge, showed that the vessel had had to sacrifice its masts. But lying on its side, it had filled, and it was heeling over to port. This skeleton of what had once been was a sad spectacle as it lay lost under the waves, but sadder still was the sight of the bridge, where some corpses, bound with ropes, were still lying. I counted five, four men, one of whom was standing at the helm, and a woman standing by the poop, holding an infant in her arms. She was quite young. I could distinguish her features which the water had not decomposed, "'by the brilliant light from the Nautilus. "'In one despairing effort "'she had raised her infant above her head, "'poor little thing, "'whose arms encircled its mother's neck. "'The attitude of the four sailors was frightful, "'distorted as they were by their convulsive movements, "'while making a last effort to free themselves "'from the cords that bound them to the vessel. "'The steersman alone, calm, with a grave, clear face, his gray hair glued to his forehead, and his hand, clutching the wheel of the helm, seemed even then to be guiding the three broken masts through the depths of the ocean. What a scene! We were dumb. Our hearts beat fast before the shipwreck, taking, as it were, from life and photographed in its last moments. And I saw already, coming towards it with hungry eyes, enormous sharks, attracted by the human flesh. However, the Nautilus, turning, went round the submerged vessel, and in one instant I read on the stern, The Florida, Sunderland. Chapter 18. Vanicoro. 
This terrible spectacle was the forerunner of the series of maritime catastrophes that the Nautilus was destined to meet within its route. As long as it went through more frequented waters, we often saw the hulls of shipwrecked vessels and deeper-down cannons, bullets, anchors, chains, and a thousand other iron materials eaten up by rust. However, on the 11th of December, we sighted the Pomatou Islands, the old dangerous group that extended over a space of 500 leagues at east-southeast to west-northwest from the island Ducie to that of Lazareff. This group covers an area of 370 square leagues, and it is formed of 60 groups of islands, among which the Gambier group is remarkable, over which France exercises sway. These are coral islands, slowly raised but continuous, created by the daily work of polypi. Then this new island will be joined later on to the neighboring groups, and a fifth continent will stretch from New Zealand and New Caledonia, and from thence to the Marquesas. One day, when I was suggesting this theory to Captain Nemo, he replied coldly, The earth does not want new continents, but new men. Chance had conducted the Nautilus towards the island of Clermont-Tonnerre, one of the most curious of the group, that was discovered in 1822 by Captain Bell of the Minerva. I could study now the madreporal system to which are due the islands in this ocean, Madripoors, which must not be mistaken for corals, have a tissue lined with a crust, and the modifications of its structure have induced Monsieur Edwards, my worthy master, to class them into five sections. The animalcule that the marine polypus secretes live by millions at the bottom of their cells. Their calcareous deposits become rocks, reefs, and large and small islands. Here they form a ring surrounding a little inland lake, that communicates with the sea by means of gaps. There they make barriers of reefs, like those on the coasts of New Caledonia and the various Pomatone Islands. In other places, like those at Reunion and at Maurice, they raise fringe reefs, high, straight walls near which the depth of the ocean is considerable. Some cable lengths off the shores of the island of Clermont, I admired the gigantic work accomplished by these microscopical workers. These walls are especially the work of those madripoors. These polypi are found particularly in the rough beds of the sea, near the surface, and consequently it is from the upper part that they begin their operations, in which they bury themselves by degrees with the debris of the secretions that support them. Such is, at least, Darwin's theory, who thus explains the formation of the atolls, a superior theory, to my mind, to that given of the foundation of the madreporical works, summits of mountains or volcanoes that are submerged some feet below the level of the sea. I could observe closely these curious walls, for perpendicular they were more than three hundred yards deep, and our electric sheets lighted up this calcareous matter brilliantly. Replying to a question Conseil asked me as to the time these colossal barriers took to be raised, I astonished him much by telling him that learned men reckoned it about the eighth of an inch in a hundred years. Towards evening, Clermont-Tonnerre was lost in the distance, and the route of the Nautilus was sensibly changed. After having crossed the Tropic of Capricorn in a 135 longitude, it sailed west-northwest, making again for the tropical zone. 
Although the summer sun was very strong, we did not suffer from heat, for at fifteen or twenty fathoms below the surface, the temperature did not rise above from ten to twelve degrees. On fifteenth of December, we left to the east the bewitching group of the societies and the graceful Tahiti, Queen of the Pacific. I saw in the morning, some miles to the windward, the elevated summits of the island. These waters furnished our table with excellent fish, mackerel, bonitos, and some varieties of a sea serpent. On the 25th of December, the Nautilus sailed into the midst of the New Hebrides, discovered by Quiros in 1606, and that Bougainville explored in 1768, and to which Cook gave its present name in 1773. This group is composed principally of nine large islands that form a band of 120 leagues between 15 and 2 south latitude and 164 degrees and 168 degrees longitude. We passed tolerably near to the island of Aru that at noon looked like a mass of green woods surmounted by a peak of great height. That day being Christmas Day, Ned Land seemed to regret sorely the non-celebration of Christmas, the family fete of which Protestants are so fond. I had not seen Captain Nemo for a week, when on the morning of the 27th he came into the large drawing-room, always seeming as if he had seen you five minutes before. I was busily tracing the route of the Nautilus on the planisphere. The captain came up to me, put his finger on one spot on the chart, and said, this single word, Vanicoro. The effect was magical. It was the name of the islands on which La Perouse had been lost. I rose suddenly. The Nautilus has brought us to Vanicoro, I asked. Yes, Professor, said the captain. And I can visit the celebrated islands where the Boussole and the Australab struck. If you like, Professor. When shall we be there? We are there now. Followed by Captain Nemo, I went up onto the platform and greedily scanned the horizon. To the northeast, two volcanic islands emerged of unequal size, surrounded by a coral reef that measured forty miles in circumference. We were close to Vanicoro, and exactly facing the little harbor of Vanu, situated in 164 south latitude and 164 32 east longitude. The earth seemed covered with verdure from the shore to the summits in the interior that were crowned by Mount Capago, 476 feet high. The Nautilus, having passed the outer belt of rocks by a narrow strait, found itself among breakers where the sea was from 30 to 40 fathoms deep. Just then Captain Nemo asked me what I knew about the wreck of La Perouse. "'Only what everyone knows, Captain,' I replied." "'And could you tell me what everyone knows about it?' he inquired, ironically. "'Easily.' "'I related to him all that the last works of Dumont d'Urville had made known, "'works from which the following is a brief account. "'La Perouse and his second, Captain de Longal, "'were sent by Louis the Sixteenth in 1785 on a voyage of circumnavigation.' They embarked in the corvettes Boussole and the Astrolabe, neither of which were again heard of. In 1791, the French government, justly uneasy as to the fate of these two sloops, manned two large merchantmen, the Recherche and the Esperance, 
which left Brest the 28th of September under the command of Bruni d'Entrecasteau. Two months after, they learned from Bowen, commander of the Albemarle, that the debris of shipwrecked vessels had been seen on the coast of New Georgia. But d'Entrecasteau, ignoring this communication, rather uncertain, besides directed his course towards the Admiralty Islands, mentioned in a report of Captain Hunter's as being the place where La Perouse was wrecked. They saw it in vain. The Esperance and the Recherche passed before Vanacoro without stopping there. And in fact, this voyage was most disastrous, as it cost d'Entrecasteau his life and those of two of his lieutenants, besides several of his crew, Captain Dillon, a shrewd old Pacific sailor, was the first to find unmistakable traces of the wrecks. On the 15th of May, 1824, his vessel, the St. Patrick, passed close to one of the New Hebrides. There a Lasker came alongside in a canoe, sold him the handle of a sword in silver that bore the print of characters engraved on the hilt. The Lasker pretended that six years before, during a stay at Vanacoro, he had seen two Europeans that belonged to some vessels that had run aground on the reef some years ago. Dylan guessed that he meant La Perouse, whose disappearance had troubled the whole world. He tried to get on to Vanacoro, where, according to the Lasker, he would find numerous debris of the wreck, but winds and tides prevented him. Dylan returned to Calcutta, there he interested the Asiatic Society and the Indian Company in his discovery. A vessel, to which was given the name of Recherche, was put at his disposal, and he set out 23rd January, 1827, accompanied by a French agent. The Recherche, after touching at several points in the Pacific, cast anchor before Vanacoro, 7th July, 1827, in the same harbor of Vanu, where the Nautilus was at this time. There it collected numerous relics of the wreck, iron utensils, anchors, pulley straps, swivel guns, an 18-pound shot, fragments of astronomical instruments, a piece of crown work, and a bronze clock, bearing the inscription of the foundry of the arsenal at Brest about 1785. There could be no further doubt. Dillon, having made all inquiries, stayed in the unlucky place till October, then he quitted Vanacoro and directed his course towards New Zealand, put into Calcutta, 7th April, 1828, and returned to France, where he was warmly welcomed by Charles X. But at the same time, without knowing Dillon's movements, Dumont d'Urville had already set out to find the scene of the wreck, and they had learned from a whaler that some medals and a cross of St. Louis had been found. Dumont d'Urville, commander of the Astrolabe, had then sailed, and two months after Dillon had left Vanacoro, he put into Hobart Town. There he learned the results of Dillon's inquiries, and found that a certain James Hobbs, second lieutenant of the Union of Calcutta, after landing on an island situated 818 south latitude and 156 30 east longitude, had seen some iron bars. Dumont d'Urville, much perplexed and not knowing how to credit the reports of low-class journals, decided to follow Dillon's track. On the 10th of February, 1828, the Astrolabe made his way to Vanacoro, sighted it on the 12th, lay among the reefs until the 14th, and not until the 20th did he cast anchor within the barrier in the harbour of Vanu. 
There, in three or four fathoms of water, between the reefs of Paku and Vanu, lay anchors, cannons, pigs of lead and iron, embedded in the limy concretions. The large boat and the whaler belonging to the Ostrolob were sent to this place, and not without some difficulty their crews hauled up an anchor weighing eighteen hundred pounds, a brass gun, some pigs of iron, and two copper swivel guns. Dumont d'Urville learned, too, that La Perouse, after losing both his vessels on the reefs of this island, had constructed a smaller boat, only to be lost a second time, where no one knew. But the French government, fearing that Dumont d'Urville was not acquainted with Dillon's movements, had sent the sloop Bayonnaise to Vanacoro, which had been stationed on the west coast of America. The Bayonnaise cast her anchor before Vanacoro some months after the departure of the Ostrolob, but found no new document. That is the substance of what I told Captain Nemo. So, he said, no one knows now where the third vessel perished that was constructed by the castaways on the island of Vanacoro. No one knows. Captain Nemo said nothing, but signed to me to follow him into the large saloon, the Nautilus sank several yards below the waves, and the panels were opened. I hastened to the aperture, and under the crustaceans of coral, I recognized certain debris that the drags had not been able to tear up. Iron stirrups, anchors, cannons, bullets, the stem of a ship, all objects clearly proving the wreck of some vessel, and now carpeted with living flowers. While I was looking on this desolate scene, Captain Nemo said in a sad voice, Commander La Perouse set out 7th December, 1785, with his vessels La Boussole and the Astrolabe. He first cast anchor at Botany Bay, visited the Friendly Isles, New Caledonia, then directed his course towards Santa Cruz. Then his vessels struck on the unknown reefs of Vanacoro. The Boussole, which went first, ran aground on the southerly coast, the Ostrolob went to its help and ran aground too. The first vessel was destroyed almost immediately. The second, stranded under the wind, resisted some days. They installed themselves in the island and constructed a smaller boat with the debris of the two large ones. Some sailors stayed willingly at Vanacoro. The others, weak and ill, set out with La Perouse. They directed their course towards the Solomon Islands, and there perished, with everything, on the westerly coast of the chief island of the group, between Cape's deception and satisfaction. How do you know that? By this, that I found on the spot where was the last wreck. Captain Nemo showed me a tin-plate box, stamped with the French arms and corroded by the salt water. He opened it, and I saw a bundle of papers, yellow but still readable, they were the instructions of the naval minister to Commander La Perouse, annotated in the margin in Louis XVI's handwriting. "'Ah, it is a fine death for a sailor,' said Captain Nemo at last. "'A coral tomb makes a quiet grave, and I trust that I and my comrades will find no other.'" Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.